0: The scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. This can be found on page 913 of your Pew Bibles. Verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word.
1: Thanks, Tim, for reading scripture for us. And a very good morning to us all. Uh, as you know, we had an equipped session yesterday on titled uh, Christian Witness in a World of Sexual Confusion. Uh, so I think what's been happening in the culture may be somewhat perplexing to some of us. Uh, we may be wondering how we got here after all these years. Uh, this is a very helpful book to help us understand what's going on in the culture and the trends over the past actually few hundred years. They've gotten us to this point. So this is entitled Strange New World by Carl Truman. Uh, the subtitle is How Thinkers and Activists Redefine Identity. And sparked the sexual revolution. So, very helpful book. So, I'm giving this away free. Okay. So, the loudest voice wins. <laughs> all right. Uh, come, come up and get it. Or something. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> wow. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, indeed. All right, friends. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts to receive from God's word. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this time together in your word we pray that uh, the words that we hear from you would stick in our hearts we pray that you bear good fruit from our time in your word help us to listen well help us to be doers of your truth and we pray that our lives would truly reflect the beauty of Christ and his gospel we pray this in Jesus name amen the church is full of hypocrites this is one of the most common objections to Christianity. You know, one pastor responded wittily, said, "Well, there's always room for one more." Well, he has a point. Uh, hypocrisy is a problem we all wrestle with. We say one thing, but we often do something else. Now, a few years ago, the Bible College I attended, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, published a report to reckon with the slavery and racism in its history. The report lamented the contradiction between the founding faculty's belief in the gospel and their attitudes towards slavery and racism. When the school was founded in 1859, all of its faculty owned slaves. And they even defended the practice of slavery and opposed the notion of racial equality. Uh, Dr. Albert Mohler, who is the current seminary president, has warned against against the heresy of racial superiority. And he says these words, he says, if the church gets this wrong, it gets the gospel wrong. You know, indeed, beloved, our beliefs, or rather our behaviour can belie our belief. If we claim to follow Jesus, then do our lives back up what we say? We may talk the talk, but do we also walk the walk? Hypocrisy is a problem in the church, and it was a problem in the early church as well. In our passage, Paul has to confront a fellow apostle whose conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. The Bible speaks very honestly about the failings of its human characters, even of an apostle. And this reminds us not to take the gospel for granted, but to consider our own lives. Are we keeping in step with the gospel? Do our lives support what we say we believe? Or do our lives say something else about the gospel? If we have believed the gospel, then are we living according to its truth, that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone? Well, this is the big idea of our passage To preserve the truth of the gospel, we must keep in step with the gospel. To preserve the truth of the gospel, we must keep in step with the gospel. And we'll think about our passage using three questions as we work our way through these verses. Number one, how are we out of step with the gospel? Number two, what is the gospel? And number three, how are we to keep in step with the gospel? So those are the three questions that we'll use to work our way through these verses. So number one, how are we out of step with the gospel? Looking at verses 11 to 14. Well, last week we heard uh, about how the Jerusalem apostles believed and preached the same gospel as Paul. These pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John, did not require Titus to be circumcised. If you remember, Titus was a Gentile Christian, uncircumcised. But these pillars of the church in Jerusalem, they did not require Titus to be circumcised, but they received him as a fellow brother of equal standing in Christ. Uh, That's really significant because it means that they believe the same gospel that Paul was preaching, the gospel of salvation by faith alone, not by keeping the works of the law in addition to faith. Well, here in our passage, Paul recounts another interaction that he has with Peter. Uh, And and he, he recounts this interaction to again make the point that He isn't dependent on the Jerusalem apostles for his apostleship or for his gospel. In fact, Paul's rebuke of Peter shows that the gospel has authority even over the apostles. The apostles have to submit themselves to the authority of the gospel. Well, so Peter has visited uh, Antioch, which is a, a church that has probably more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. So Peter visits Antioch, and everything was fine at first. So Peter comes, and Peter was eating with the Gentile Christians who probably very graciously invited him into their homes for fellowship over meals. And then Peter gladly accepted their hospitality. You know, living in Singapore, we know firsthand how food plays a key role in bringing people together. Right? We often have fellowship around meals, over meals. Right? In fact, the term fellowship has become synonymous with eating. Uh, you know, Hawker centres have been called the social glue for people from all walks of life. Well, sharing food, we understand, signifies welcome, acceptance, friendship. I think this is why God's Word encourages us to be hospitable, right? to share our lives often by sharing meals with one another. You know, God calls us to welcome one another as He has welcomed us in Christ. Hospitality is a way in which we open our lives and perhaps open our homes to one another, especially to those in the church whom we do not know well, those who are different from us. We welcome them in so that we can express our unity as God's people. So sign up for lunch after our members meeting in October, right? Hang around, stick around. Those are just little ways in which we express our unity as God's people. Well, so Jewish, Christ, Jewish and Gentile Christians were eating with one another in the church in Antioch. And, and this was a powerful witness to the gospel's power to bring diverse peoples together, right? That, that simple act of sharing a meal spoke volumes about their unity in the faith. You know, the, the simple act of, of, that you can do to have coffee with someone else speaks volumes about your friendship In Christ. So don't don't diminish the importance of hospitality. It's really important in Scripture. And beloved, when we love and serve those who are not like us, we testify to the truth of the gospel. The Old Testament law and Jewish traditions had kept Jews and Gentiles apart. The law regarded certain foods as unclean, and Jewish customs took that even further. Uh, in the words of one old Jewish tradition, it says, eat not with Gentiles, for their works are unclean. Right? So Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. You wouldn't invite a Gentile into your home. Uh, you wouldn't go to a Gentile home to share a meal with them. Uh, you, you, they, they kept separate. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, uh, something has happened through the Gospel. He says in Ephesians 2, Jesus has broken down the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So basically, the law kept Jews and Gentiles apart, but now that Christ has come, he's brought these two different groups of people together. And we see many examples of this kind of reconciliation happen around the world, through the gospel. You know, for example, William Carey, who is one of the first uh, modern missionaries, you know, the, the Baptist missionary to India, many years ago. Uh, William Carey's first convert was this man named Krishna Paul. Uh, when Krishna Paul became a Christian, one of the first things he did was to eat with William Carey and the other missionaries. You know, he, he rejected his caste system and he expressed that new gospel unity, how? By sharing a meal with William Carey and the other missionaries. You know, that signaled the beginning of the gospel in, in India, just that simple meal. And, and Peter understood this. Right? Peter understood how eating together is a sign of how God brings us together in Christ but when certain men from James appeared at the church in Antioch, what did people do? He separated himself from the Gentiles, and he stopped eating with them. Well, these men from James belonged to the circumcision party. You know, like the false teachers troubling the Galatian church, these men taught that Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. You know, they came from Jerusalem, where James was, but James did not send them. So James, James did not send them to pass a message to the church at Antioch. You know, the, the Jerusalem apostles would later clarify in Acts 15, you know, they would say, Some persons had gone out from us and troubled you with words, although we gave them no instruction. Right? So these false teachers do not come as James's delegates. They, they, you know, James has nothing to do with them in that sense. But nonetheless, you know, when, when they arrive at the church in Antioch, Peter's afraid of them. Right? Pe- Peter is fearful of the circumcision party. That's, that's what it says in our passage. You know, he's afraid of how they would be offended by him eating with uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, you know, Peter's, Peter really struggles with the fear of man. Uh, you know, do you struggle with the fear of man? I, I know I struggle with the fear of man. You know, the opinions of others matters, matter to me uh, I, I care about what people think. And I might be tempted to not do or say certain things or to say or do certain things in order to please people, right? You hear, oh, someone's upset, so okay, i better do something to make sure that they're not upset, right? I, I think we all, we, perhaps we all struggle with, a, with the fear of man and I think we can identify with Peter. Peter was afraid of them, so he draws back from fellowship with the Gentiles, so, quite unlike Paul, right? We've just read about how Paul stood firm, not letting Titus be circumcised. Peter, on the other hand, takes the easy way out to avoid trouble. Now, beloved, we need to ask ourselves, how, how might the fear of man cause us to compromise the gospel? You know, think about, you know, if, if you're at work, do, do you talk to your colleagues about Jesus or do you not because you are worried about what they might think of you? Do you share Jesus with others, with your family? Uh, do, you talk, do you talk to your family about what it means to be a Christian, to be baptized into the body of Christ, or do you not? Because you fear their disapproval. You know, how might the fear of man cause us to compromise the gospel? Or in this day and age, maybe we are tempted to not mention sensitive topics like sin, like hell, like judgment, because we don't want to come across sounding foolish, to others. Yes, it's true, we, we don't want to cause unnecessary offence, but we should be prepared for opposition as we live in this world. We should be prepared for opposition if we want to be faithful to the gospel. Are we willing to sacrifice our own comfort and security to preserve the truth and the freedom of the gospel? Now, on the flip side, we should also ask ourselves, are we too easily offended by other believers who differ with us on secondary matters not essential to the gospel? We don't want to give offence, but we shouldn't be taking offence too easily as well on secondary matters. Now, beloved, be careful that our preferences, our opinions, even our convictions On these secondary matters, do not impinge on the gospel freedom of our brothers and sisters. That is a problem in the church as well. Even worse, we may be misrepresenting the gospel if we camp out on these secondary matters and keep taking offence on these secondary matters. Remember, Jesus has reconciled sinners to God. And he has united Jews and Gentiles together as one. Christ has done this for us. You know, Peter himself received a vision from God. Remember Acts 10? God appears to Peter in a vision and, and God says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. But now, Peter was behaving as though the gospel wasn't true. By not eating with Gentile Christians, Peter was implying that they had to be circumcised before they could enjoy fellowship with the other Christians. Peter was separating what God had joined together. In effect, Peter was denying the gospel by treating the Gentiles as second class, not fit to eat with them. Beloved, do we realize that we are effectively denying the gospel when we discriminate against one another? Do we uh, we understand that we are denying the gospel if we hold grudges against one another, if we refuse to be reconciled to one another, if we are not forgiving one another because of personal offence? Now Beware of causing disunity in the church, whether by complaining about one another, gossiping to one another, being judgmental and critical of one another. And remember, Jesus has shed His blood. Jesus has shed His blood to make us one. And we we did not create this. The the church is not our creation. Our, Our unity is not due to our cleverness. It's not due to our institution. It's not due to the fact that we are nice people and we all get along. No, no, not at all. Our unity is the product of what Christ has done. He has shed His blood to make us one. So I pray that we as God's people, would cherish our unity in the gospel. Unity in the gospel, not in anything else, in the gospel. You know, it's instructive to realize as we read this passage that Peter did not change his theology. Peter still believed the gospel. Right? The problem was not because Peter had become liberal in his theology, like he stopped believing the Bible, started believing a false gospel. No, that, that, that's not the case at all. Peter did not change his theology. He still believed the gospel. But he was believing one thing and doing another. That's why Paul charges Peter with being a hypocrite. You say you believe the gospel, then why do you live in this way? You say you believe that we're saved by faith alone, that we're all one in Christ, then why do you treat the Gentiles as second class? Right? So Peter was being a hypocrite. He was not living out the truths of the gospel that he said he believed. Basically, right doctrine without right living equals hypocrisy. Right doctrine without right living equals hypocrisy. Knowing the gospel without applying the gospel equals hypocrisy. And this is perhaps a truth that we need to hear at GBC, right? We we, we, we pride ourselves in knowing the Bible. We, we pride ourselves with Bible preaching. You know, we, we pride ourselves with uh, being sound in our doctrine, unlike those other uh, folks, perhaps. You know. but, but GBC, we need to ask ourselves, right? Does our life together as a church also reflect the truth of the gospel? It's not enough just to have sound doctrine, but are our lives sound In that they display the beauty of Christ and the gospel, especially in our relationships with one another. Let us take heed lest we fall. Now, even an apostle can stumble and lead others astray. Now, the rest of the Jews, says in verse 13, acted hypocritically along with Peter. Now, even Barnabas, of all people, Barnabas, you know, whose, whose name means son of encouragement, Barnabas was Paul's co-laborer in reaching, reaching the Gentiles. Even Barnabas was led astray. and Barnabas stopped hanging out with Gentile Christians because of Peter's hypocrisy. Oh, those of you, those of us who are in positions of responsibility, whether you're a parent, a teacher, a colleague, a boss a leader of a care group, an elder. You know, we need to ask ourselves, are we leading others astray by our example? What, what kind of example are we setting for those whom we care for around us? You know, whether we intend to or not, we will influence others either for better or for worse. You know, No, no one likes conflict. You know, no one likes confrontation. So you can imagine the awkwardness that's going on in the Antioch church, right? You have the, the Peter group, and then you have the Paul group, right? The ones that say, we should eat with Gentiles, and the other one says, no, we shouldn't eat with Gentiles. You can imagine the, the, the awkwardness in, in the gathering with these, these two different groups of believers, especially awkward because you have two apostles publicly disagreeing with each other. Imagine how awkward that would be. You know, but, but it's a necessary conflict. Because every time there's conflict in the church, it actually serves a, a helpful purpose because it, it clarifies the gospel, doesn't it? And I think this conflict is happening in the Antioch church for the purpose of clarifying what the gospel really is. And that's helpful for the church. So, so Paul stands up in, in the midst of all this and he publicly rebukes Peter for causing others to sin. Right? He, he, he rebukes Peter before them all Imagine he calls a church meeting. Hey, hey, let's all get together. And he stands up in the meeting and says, "Peter, you're wrong. Peter, you're disobeying God." And why why does Paul do that? Because he understands what's at stake, right? Gospel unity, gospel truth, are at stake. And Paul says, "Your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. If if you keep living this way, you will tell lies about the gospel." And then soon you will lose the gospel, and that's why Paul has to stand up and take action. Right, so he calls Peter, he calls out Peter's inconsistency before the whole church. Right? he says to Peter, "If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews?" In other words, he says to Peter, "Hey, Peter, you've been living as one who has been set free from the law by the gospel." How then can you insist that the Gentiles obey the law in order to be accepted into fellowship? It doesn't make sense. You know, like Paul, let's be willing to say and hear difficult things in order to help one another keep in step with the gospel. You now, if an apostle can behave inconsistently, then how much more for us? Now, this is the reason why we join together as a church, right? Because we we are saying when we come together as a church, when we become a member of a church, what we're saying is that I can't be trusted to live the gospel life on my own. My, My heart's deceitful. I have many, many blind spots. And I need brothers and sisters around me to point out my blind spots, to help me to live in a way that is consistent with the gospel, to encourage me, to admonish me, when circumstances require to just spur me on to live a gospel faithful life and we need one another for that so be willing to say and hear difficult things from one another because we're all walking and running this race together to live for Jesus and to be faithful to his gospel now we we speak the truth in love to others who may be in danger of straying from the gospel, and we need others to tell us when we are out of line. And that's precisely what Paul does for Peter. Which brings us to our second point, you know, what is the gospel, verses 15 and 16. If if you look at this passage from verse 15 to 21, this is essentially Paul's exhortation to Peter, his reasoning with Peter, right? This is is the gospel, and this is how we are to keep in step with the gospel, verses 15 to 21. We'll look at that in two points. So, so point, point two, uh, what is the gospel, verse 15 and 16? Notice how Paul starts with the gospel in his words to Peter. Now we may be wondering, why does Paul do that? Right? After all, on the surface, the issue has, it's, it's not really a theological issue, is it? it? It's just an issue of whether Jews and Gentiles should eat together. So why does Paul talk about the gospel? Because underneath this question is a deeper question. How can guilty sinners be right with God? This question of Jew and Gentiles having fellowship is actually premised on a deeper question of how are Jews and Gentiles saved? Are they saved on equal terms or are they not? If we are equally saved by God's grace, through faith alone in Christ alone, then we have no reason no reason at, at all to draw lines between one another if we understand the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. So it begins, so Paul begins to reason with, with Peter. He says, you know, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right, so, so what's Paul saying here? He says, Look, look, Peter. You and I, we're Jews, right? We're good Jews, we, we know the law, we have the law, our parents taught us the law, uh, we are well acquainted with what the law says. You know, we're not like these Gentile, quote, sinners who do not have God and do not have the law, right? We, we are better off than them in that sense. We, we are in a more advantageous position. But then Paul says, but even, even we, in such a privileged, advantageous position, even we know that we're sinners as well. We have all these religious privileges, but even then, we still know that we are like the Gentile sinners, right? We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We have the law, and yet we know that this law cannot save us. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then if you look at verse 16, justified is the key word in this verse. It's mentioned three times in in this verse. It's it's a legal term borrowed from the law courts. In the Bible, God justifies us how by declaring us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. To be justified means to be right with God because He declares us to be righteous in His sight. Now, why do we need to be justified? Why do we need to be right with God? It's because we have all turned away from Him. He made us to worship Him, to know Him, to enjoy Him, but we have turned away from God to live for ourselves. And and the Bible calls this turning away from God, sin. So sin is not just I do bad things, but sin is fundamentally a failure to worship God as God. Sin is a failure to give thanks to our Creator. Right? That, that's sin. And, and this sin against God, this turning away from God, results in our condemnation. The opposite of justification is condemnation, right? Because of our sin, we have come under God's condemnation. Right? So we have a problem. We, we're under judgment, under God's judgment. So how then? can unrighteous sinners like us be made right with God? That's a key question in the Bible. How can unrighteous sinners be made right with God? Paul says, right, we, we, he says to Peter, hey, look, Peter, we're Jews, we have the law, and yet we know that this law cannot make us right with God. We know that we can't be made right with God through works of the law. Right? We, we cannot gain a right standing with God by obeying all His commandments. Why? Because we are unable to give Him the perfect obedience that He requires. So God is perfectly holy, He's perfectly righteous, and we will always fall short of His glory. Therefore, the only way we can be made right with God is not by our works, but we have to trust in what God has done to justify sinners like us. Praise God that He did not leave us in our sins. In His grace and love, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners like us. Jesus perfectly obeyed God for us, and He died on the cross as a substitute to take on Himself in our place, if we trust Him, to take on Himself the, the punishment for our sin. And because Jesus atones for our sins, if we trust in Him, God is right to forgive us because our sins have truly been paid for because we are truly righteous in God's sight. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, having defeated sin and death. And that's why Paul says we're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in this Saviour, Jesus Christ. Faith means trust. Faith means to rely on. Faith means to depend on. So basically what Paul is saying is that we we are saved by depending not on ourselves, not on our efforts, but depending on another, resting, relying on what Christ has done alone to save us from our sins. We're saved through his life, death, and resurrection. So when we believe in Jesus, he credits his righteousness to us. So when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. And He can be just to declare us righteous because we are clothed with the perfect righteousness of His Son. Right? That's the good news of the gospel, friends. That we don't have to work to save ourselves because we can't. But God has done it for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. The truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is really at the core. Of the gospel, but knowing the gospel in general terms isn't enough. We must personally believe the good news. You notice how Paul progresses in verse 16 from we know to we have also believed in Christ Jesus to, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You notice what he's saying to Peter Look, look, Peter. We as Jews know that we are not saved by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In, even more than that, we have believed this gospel. We ourselves have believed this gospel. So, so the gospel is not just knowing something intellectually, but it's personally believing it to be true and committing ourselves, our entire lives, to the gospel because it's true. Well, friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, can I invite you to trust in this gospel? You know, are you trying to be good enough for God? Or do you think that you can never be good enough for God, so you just give up? Well, the gospel is good news. It invites you to trust in Jesus, who makes you right with God. The gospel is a wonderful invitation for all of us to come and to receive freely from Jesus. If we have believed the gospel, then, or rather Paul says to Peter, if you have trusted in Christ alone and not your own works for salvation, then how can you separate from Gentile brothers who are saved by the very same gospel? Paul then emphasizes the truth of the gospel in universal terms. He says at the end of verse 16, by works of the law, no one, Right? it's a categorical statement, no one, will be justified. This echoes what Paul says elsewhere. In Romans 3, for example, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, beloved, we are justified by God's grace as a gift. What a wonderful truth. I, I pray that this truth would really grow in our hearts and move us to greater gratitude to God and greater love for one another because we have all received the same gospel. You know, beloved, if we have been saved through the gospel, then how can we be proud? How can we be proud? How can we draw lines and discriminate against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ if we have been saved by the same gospel? Instead, you know, shouldn't we humbly welcome love, and serve one another since we are one in Christ? Shouldn't we be patient and compassionate and merciful towards one another because we have been saved by this gospel in Christ? In Christ, we have the wonderful privilege of making this gospel visible, visible, through our life together as His church. You ever had this? you ever had this experience where you share the gospel with someone and the person says, I don't see God. I'll believe it when I see it. Actually, the reply to that is, come and see. Come and see how the people of God live with one another. That's how we, that's how we demonstrate that God is with us, by how we live with one another in the gospel. Now I pray that for us as a church, we will not only hold fast to sound doctrine, but we should also display the gospel in how we do life together, in how we love and serve one another, in how we relate to one another. We also want to be a church that welcomes the spiritually broken and needy, that we might point them to the same saviour that has saved us. Beloved, the, the church is not a club for good people. The church is not a club for good people. It's a hospital for redeemed and recovering sinners. That's us. Because we ourselves have received grace and mercy from Jesus, we proclaim Him, the friend of sinners, who justifies the ungodly. Beloved, may we treasure the gospel and live according to its truth. So number three, how are, we keep, how are we to keep in step with the gospel? Verses 17 to 21. You know, the, we, we, we may be hearing Paul, and just like the false teachers are hearing Paul, and, and they have all these, they have these objections to what he's saying. Right? They say, wait, wait a minute, Paul. Aren't you sinning by abandoning the law? You know, won't your gospel of justification by faith alone, without works, promote some kind of lawlessness? disobedience, right? you're telling people that they can't do anything to save themselves, wouldn't this give them license to do whatever they want, right? Oh, I can sin like the devil and then after that just say I believe and then I'm safe. It's just like that, right? Does the gospel encourage that kind of lawlessness? So Paul has to address these objections to the gospel here in these verses. That the false teachers were accusing Paul of being anti-law anti-law. Hey, you don't care about the law. You don't care about holiness or obedience. Right? That's what they were accusing Paul of. So he begins to answer their objection in verses 17 to 18. Right? He says, verse 17 to 18, if, But if in our endeavour to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now friends, these are really difficult verses. I've had many questions about I mean, what do they mean. So let, let's try to unpack these verses. Let me explain what I think Paul means. So, so there are two ways to, to, to understand verse 17. Right? I, I think there are two possible understandings of verse 17. You know, for one, Paul is saying, you know, I, I want to be justified in Christ. And as I seek to be justified in Christ, I, I now understand myself to be a sinner. We too were found to be sinners. I want to be justified in Christ, so I now understand myself to be a sinner. So does this mean that Jesus is encouraging me to sin? No, of course not. Right? I need to know that I'm a sinner in order to turn to Him and be justified in Him. Right? So that, that's, one, that's one possible understanding of verse 17. An, another way to understand verse 17 is you know, Paul is seeking to be justified in Christ, not through works of the law. So the false teachers then say to Paul, hey, hey! You are, you are turning away from the law by turning to Jesus alone. That makes you a sinner because you're no longer doing the works of the law. Right? So, so that, that's another possible way to understand verse 17. And Paul says, of course not. Right? Is, is Christ a servant of sin? Is Christ encouraging me to sin like that? Of course not. Right? Uh, I, I'm turning to Him and turning away from the law because I rightly understand that we are saved by faith alone not through works of the law. So how can Christ be a servant of sin? Right. So, so those are the two possible ways of understanding verse 17, which then flows into verse 18. Right? The, the gist of what Paul is saying is that we cannot be saved by the works of the law. We're saved through Christ alone. So Paul has torn down uh, the law as a means of making himself right with God. That's what it means, right? He, he's torn down the law as a means of justification. Right? And now Paul says, I understand that the law cannot save. You know, and this is a significant thing for Paul to say. You remember Paul's background? He's a former Pharisee. You know, he, he earned his living in the law. That was his life. You know, Paul was once confident that he was blameless under the law. But now he realizes that the law cannot save. So in a sense, he, he tears down his former life. He tears down the law as a way of making himself right with God. You now This is astounding for someone who used to proudly base his identity and worth in the law. You now Paul even says that he will be transgressing God's will if he rebuilds the law now that Christ has come. Right. He, he, so basically, Paul is saying, I'm seeking to be justified in Christ. I know that I cannot save myself, and therefore I'm no longer relying on the law as a means to make myself right with God. I've torn it down. And if I were to listen to the false teachers, if I were to rebuild the law as a means of justification, then I'm actually sinning against God. Right. And, you know, that, that's something we need to hear, right? So if we... Rely on anything in addition to Jesus to make ourselves right with God, we are sinning against God. That's what Paul is saying in verse 18. If, if if you try to trust in anything else apart from Jesus, you're not doing God any favors. You are sinning against Him. You, you make yourself a transgressor. That, that's the weight. Of verse eighteen, and, and he's saying that to Peter, right? Look, Peter, if if you don't eat with Gentiles, if you continue to draw these lines, you make yourself a transgressor because you are implying that Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be in in addition, in order to be saved. You know, Paul is not anti-law, but he understands that the old covenant law is temporary. You know, some of you who are older, you, you know when the, the first colour broadcast by radio television Singapore happened? Anyone? 1974. I think Carol would probably know. Where's Carol? I think you probably know. Uh, so, 1974 was the first colour television broadcast by RTS. You know, so since then, we've transitioned from black and white to colour TV, right? How many of you still watch black and white TV? Maybe if people who are collectors, you like vintage stuff, maybe. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's how we understand the law, right? The law was like black and white TV. It served its purpose. It's not a bad thing. It served its purpose. But now color TV has come, right? Christ has come. So Paul is saying, why do you still want to watch black and white TV, right? Uh, he, he's torn down the law because the law is meant to lead us to Jesus. You know, more, more on this in chapter 3 of Galatians, but, but that, that's the gist of what Paul is saying, don't go back to relying on the works of the law, because Jesus has come. The law was meant to point to Jesus. the law was, wasn't, wasn't meant to save, but to lead us to Jesus. Now, after all, Paul says, if the law could really make us righteous, then why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to suffer and die if the law was able to make us righteous? That's why he says at the end of the passage in verse 21, to rely on the law for salvation is to nullify, reject the grace of God. For us to trust in anything in addition to Jesus is to say that he died in vain, that he didn't need to die. It's for no purpose. So unlike the false teachers, Paul has died to the law, through the law. What, what does that mean? Right? So, so once Paul was held captive by the law, and its demands, right? The law demanded obedience and the law demanded judgment in the case of failure to obey. But now Christ has set him free. How? Paul tells us in chapter 4 of Galatians, Jesus was born under the law to redeem, to set free those who were under the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law for us if we trust in him. Jesus perfectly obeyed and Jesus has taken the penalty demanded by the law on himself so that if we trust in him, we are freed from the law's demands. The law has no hold over us in that sense. So through the death of Jesus, we die to the law. But it's important to realize that this doesn't give us license to do whatever we want Notice what Paul says, we die to the law, verse 19, so that, for the purpose of, so that we might live to God. We, We don't just die to the law and then do whatever we want. No, We die to the law so that we might live to God. So believing the gospel doesn't lead to sin. Believing the gospel actually produces the fruit of obedience and love for God. The gospel sets us free to truly live for God, to to spend our lives loving Him and serving Him. you know I I love the hymn, And Can It Be?, by Charles Wesley. We're going to sing that in a while. Uh, It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. So that's the captivity they were in. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. Freedom. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and did whatever I pleased. No, it doesn't say that, right? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel changes us by uniting us to a person. Right? The gospel is not just some abstract theology or doctrine. The gospel unites us to a person, Jesus Christ. And, and Paul speaks of his own transformation from a persecutor of Christians to a follower of Jesus. Paul says, you know, I think for many of us, verse 20 is like our life verse, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we believe in Jesus, our old sinful self is nailed to the cross with him. Hence, we no longer live for ourselves according to our former way of life. The old has passed away, the new has come. We die with Christ and we are also raised with Him to new life. That's why Paul can say, I no longer live. Christ lives in me by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us a new heart to love God, to trust Him, and then to obey Him. And then we can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. But until Jesus returns, we still live in the flesh, in the weakness and fallenness of our flesh. So how do we live as we struggle with sin, with suffering, with life in the fallen world? How do we live? Paul says, we keep on trusting. We keep on living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's present tense, continuous, but we keep on trusting. So faith is not just, yeah, I, I had faith many years ago when I trusted in Jesus, but now it's all about what I can do. No, it's not. I trusted in Jesus then, and I am still trusting in Jesus now for my righteousness, and I must keep trusting in him until the end. Faith alone, throughout my life, living by faith in the Son of God, trusting in Jesus alone for our righteousness. Don't start with faith and go back to works. Faith keeps clinging on to Christ through the ups and downs of life in the flesh. Beloved, when pride tempts us to boast of our performance and accomplishments, remember that Christ alone has made us right with God, not our works. When we wrestle with disappointment and discouragement amid our struggles and failures, you know, take heart, be encouraged by the truth that we have been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. When doubts arise and we, fail, we feel as though our faith will fail, you know, be assured that we have an all-sufficient saviour. I, I love Paul's personal language, right? The gospel is not just some nice academic theology. The gospel is real, right? Paul says, this saviour loved me. Just think about that. Can we say that in our hearts? Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Next time you're tempted to trust in your own works, next time you're down, discouraged, say that to yourself. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul does in this verse. We are greatly loved by Christ. and That's how we keep in step with the gospel. Keep trusting in this Saviour who loved us and gave Himself for us. May we repent of any hypocrisy that denies the gospel. And may God help us to believe right gospel doctrine and to practice right gospel living. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us in the Gospel. We pray that we as a people would unite around the Gospel. We pray that we would love one another and serve one another because of what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we believe the Gospel and may we display the Gospel in our life together.